Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. Grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. It was January 5th, 2020, when we started a series of topical messages. I mentioned that to Tom this morning, and he said, that can't be possible. It feels like it's been three months. But for the entirety of the calendar year of 2020, we began with Bible basics, and we have worked our way all the way through a bit of eschatology and looking forward to our future hope. And for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about the kingdom. Whether you're talking about the Old Testament or the New Testament, that is one of the most pervasive topics you see. <clears throat> Promises of a kingdom to come and language of a present kingdom, language of a spiritual kingdom, Language of a future kingdom. Language of Israel's kingdom. Language of the kingdom of heaven. There's so much kingdom language in the Bible that I felt that before we finished this series of topical messages and moved on to the promised study of the book of Ephesians and Colossians, which to me, by the way, I thought, well, okay, Ephesians, but gee, it seems like we were just in Ephesians. Do you remember the last time that we taught through the book of Ephesians? I checked it online. 2007. It's been 13 years. So it seems like starting 2021 with the declaration of God's absolute sovereignty in salvation seems like a good place to start. And so for the next couple of weeks, we'll be talking kingdom. On the 13th of December, I will be helping Elder Pickett up at New Christian Life Church in Lebanon. And our friend Barney Johnson will be standing here. There are a couple of words. The word in the Hebrew is meluka. If I am pronouncing that right, meluka, the Greek word is basileia. They both mean the exact same thing. They both help us to define what a kingdom is. Both of those words mean a realm, an area, or a thing that is ruled. And so in order to have a kingdom, there's three things that you actually need. First, you need a ruler. Someone has to actually be ruling. Then you actually need a rule. The ruler has to implement his rules. And then thirdly, there has to be the ruled. People who are actually subject to the rules that are made by the ruler. If you have all three of those elements, you have what is known as a kingdom. 
a realm over which a ruler rules. Now, when we talk about kingdom in the Bible, it is absolutely true that God is a king on his throne. So we have to start there. We have to start with it is absolutely true that God at this very moment is sitting on his throne. And based on the definition I just supplied for you, he is ruling. He has laid out his rules and his creation is ruled. And so he is, by definition, a king on a throne at this very moment. Heaven is his kingdom, as well as the whole of creation is his kingdom, considering that he calls even the stars individually by their name, considering that there is not a random atom in his universe, Considering that everything occurs exactly the way he has determined that it's going to occur, he can rightly be said to be the king, the ruler. Therefore, he has a kingdom. So sometimes when we use the word kingdom, sometimes when we see the word kingdom in the Bible, we are talking about that spiritual reality, that God himself is a king. Now, there is also a great deal of errant theology when you talk about the kingdom. Because people will say, well, God is a king on his throne that is provable, that is demonstrable, and therefore that eliminates any other idea or concept of kingdom here on earth or any future kingdom for Israel or any kingdom established on earth by Christ. So the idea of a physical kingdom in time and reality and history becomes eliminated by the reality that God is indeed a king sitting on his throne. He is actively ruling over those who are ruled. So here's our first principle, our first rule that you have to hold on to, if I can use that word. The first principle you have to realize is that biblically, the fact that you can identify a spiritual kingdom does not negate or eliminate the promises of a future physical kingdom. Both of those things are absolutely true. They are both kingdoms, but they are different kinds of kingdoms. At this very moment on planet Earth, There are many different groups of people who are ruled over by different governmental authorities. In fact, some still have a king or a queen. Some are democracies. Some are republics. Some are under communistic rule or socialism. All of those individually are sets of rules that establish individual Kingdoms, according to the biblical definition, and they are different kinds of kingdoms. And the existence of any one of those individual kingdoms does not negate or eliminate those other kingdoms. You get what I'm saying? The fact that you can identify the spiritual kingdom, and we will be identifying the spiritual kingdom, but the fact that you can identify it does not negate or eliminate all the promises of which there are many. It's going to take us weeks to get through the promises of a future 
physical kingdom. And so to really talk about kingdom, you have to be willing and capable of talking about both aspects of the kingdom. There is a spiritual reality to the kingdom. There is a physical reality to the kingdom. When we read Psalm 22:28, we read, For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. Okay, well, that defines the spiritual kingdom for us. Because God is clearly called a king there. The kingdom is the Lord's. So all the elements of the definition are actually in that verse. There is a ruler, the Lord. There is a rule because he rules over the nations. And there are people who are ruled, the nations. And so there is an aspect in which we can rightly biblically say that God is at this very moment as the sovereign on his throne ruling over the whole of planet earth and indeed the whole of his creation and the nations of planet earth, the people of planet earth, the rulers of planet earth, the kings of planet earth are all subject to the ultimate rule of the ultimate king of kings who is setting out his rules and the Bible itself declares King David himself, who was the king over Israel, who knew what it was to be a ruler, specifically used that language of the kingdom is the Lord's. Now, whether you're going to define the kingdom there as the kingdom of Israel over which David was ruling, or whether you're going to say the kingdom is the whole of God's creation, either way, it still belongs to the Lord. He created it for his own purposes. He's going to accomplish what he has chosen to accomplish in his kingdom. He's going to set out whatever rules he wants in his kingdom. And if you don't like his rules, you don't get an opinion because he's, what's that word? King, because he's the king over his creation. He is actively ruling, thereby he makes the rules. And you don't get to argue because he's king, you're not. Isaiah 37, 16 says, speaking of God, he is called Lord of armies. He is called the Lord Sabaoth. He is the ruler over everyone and everything. Lord of armies, God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim. The very fact that he is enthroned means that he's sitting on a throne, which means he is the majesty on high, which means he is the ruler. He is the king. And he is enthroned above the angelic host, above the cherubim. You are God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You made heaven and earth. Notice in that verse the contrast. It began with God is enthroned above the angels. That is very, very spiritual. I mean, that is God on his heavenly throne, ruling above all the angels and all the armies of heaven. But then it also gets very, very physical because you are God, you alone, over all the kingdoms of the earth. And the kingdoms of the earth are very, very physical. 
That's reality, that's time, that's history. So God is, in that single verse, defined as both the spiritual king of everything and the physical king of everything. And he doesn't lose his spiritual nature just because he's ruling over the nations of the earth. And he doesn't lose his king of the earth status just because he is the spiritual king on his throne in heaven. The two are equal. He describes himself both ways. Therefore, we have to adjust our thinking in order to recognize God and accept God as both the spiritual king and the very, very physical king. He is the king over the physicality of earth. He is the king over the spirituality of earth. From the very beginning, at the very start, you open the Bible, you get to Adam and Eve. You don't have to go very far into the Bible. The first chapter of the book of Genesis, because he's king, he's making everything. He's making heaven and earth, as Isaiah just told us. He's creating everything, and he's creating it for his own pleasure to do whatever he wants. But at the very same moment, what you see is him acting as a king by virtue of the fact that he lays out rules. And he already has someone to rule over. So instantly in the book of Genesis, you see him acting as a king. Not only is he the king of his realm, which realm he designed and created, but then once he creates people, he gives them rules. And he tells them what they're going to do. You're going to tend the garden. You're going to take care of the animals. You're going to don't eat from that tree. Whatever you do, you can eat from any tree of the garden. Don't eat from that tree. Those are rules. Why is he able to lay out rules instantly? Because he's the king. Because he's the ruler. And so from the very beginning of human history, from the beginning of biblical history, from the very start of the very start of the very starting, the beginning of everything, at the start of the beginning of everything, before the beginning of the start of the things that are, at the very start of beginning, he represents himself as the king. That's the first thing you know about him. Before you know anything else about him, you know he's king. Demonstrated by the fact that he made everything. He made heaven and earth for his own sake, for his own glory, and then he rules over heaven and earth. He rules over the angelic host. When Satan rebels against him, he throws him out of heaven. Why does he have the right to do that? Because he's the king of heaven. It's his rule. He gets to make up the rules. Right away, when he has made human beings, he starts laying out rules. That is the activity that demonstrates to us all that God considers himself king, absolute authority. When we say the word sovereign, which we say a lot here at Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship, says it on our sign out front, Says it on our business card. Says it on our website. Sovereign. Every time we say the word sovereign, what we're really saying is he rules. He's the king. He decides. He makes up his mind. 
He rules in his heaven, and he rules so completely over his own domain that it's even up to him who gets into his domain. It's even up to him who's going to be punished and cast into outer darkness. It's up to him who he's going to reveal himself to and who he's going to turn over to a strong delusion. It's up to him. All of that demonstrates kingship. All of that demonstrates that he is absolute Lord and master. All of that demonstrates that the only option you have in the relationship between you and the king is to bow the knee to the king. Earthly kings make sure people bow the knee. How much more so your heavenly king who is in absolute sovereign charge of everything. Oh, I guess I'll tell this story. You'll excuse me for just a moment for giving you a personal story. I mentioned to Elizabeth this morning, she asked about Janine. And I mentioned that in calendar year 2020, I have not laid eyes on Janine. And she said, how do you do that? That's, that's hard. I pray for you all the time. That's really tough. How are you doing it? And I said, did I not, that I've learned the lesson yet again, that all I get to do is bow the knee. All I get to do is accept what the king has decided to do. So that is the perspective that we should all have when we pray to him, when we worship him, when we sing to him, we should recognize that he is the absolute sovereign Lord God and King and that he was under no obligation whatsoever to allow us into his presence. And yet we have this grand and glorious and gracious gift where the all-omnipotent master of time, space, and reality invited us to come boldly to his throne of grace through the sacrificial work of the son of the king. You didn't even do it. The son of the king did it on your behalf. That's why he is the prince of princes. Yes. That's why he is Lord God Almighty because they both rule and in their rulership they accomplished everything necessary to guarantee your eternity because they decide who it is that gets into their presence because they're kings you get it that term kingdom is also used to designate a particular line of promises that were made to Israel nationally and exclusively. In other words, promises that God made to Israel as a nation that he didn't make to anybody else. There were no other nations of people that got in on the covenant that God formed and the promises that God gave to Israel, so much so that when Paul is writing to the Romans and asking the question, what advantage does the Jew have? He says, much in every way, because theirs are the promises. Theirs are the covenants. Theirs are the prophets. 
They have all these advantages that the other peoples of the earth simply did not have. And so sometimes when we say kingdom, we're actually referring to that great long historic lineage of promises. We won't get to it this morning. We'll hopefully get to it next week or perhaps the week after. But at some point, we're going to stop and read what the prophets have said because they do speak with one voice. They all say the exact same thing. And the exact same thing they all say is there is a future promise. You get that word promise? Have I emphasized that yet enough? Promise from God, guarantee from God that they are going to have a unique, incredibly blessed kingdom unlike anything we've ever seen on planet Earth. And all the prophets say that. And Paul picks it up in the New Testament and says, what advantage does the Jew have? Well, first off, he has the promises. So New Testament attestation is that the promises made in the Old Testament are still belonging to Israel. Now, we haven't seen that promised kingdom yet. And by the way, the regathering of Israel in 1948 over there in the Middle East is not the kingdom. It doesn't satisfy the requirements of the kingdom. And the more we look into the requirements for the future kingdom, the more you're going to see that Israel, as it stands nationally at this moment, can't be the fulfillment of it. It may be a foreshadow of it. It may be a planting of it, a seed that's going to grow into it. But it is not the ultimate kingdom to come. There is this kingdom that is described by all the prophets of Israel. And as I said, I'm sure you're sick of this phrase by now. I know I'm sick of it, and I'm the one that keeps saying it, that all the prophets of Israel speak with one voice. They all keep saying the same thing over and over again, and the one thing they say is, there's this glorious kingdom coming. Okay, so, glorious kingdom promised to Israel nationally and exclusively, that's firmly biblical, and that's firmly physical. I'm going to prove that to you. That it's a physical promise in time and history. Has to take place on planet Earth. Okay, that's reality over here. God is on his throne as a king ruling over everyone. That's also reality over here. Now, I would also contend that this physical promised kingdom given to Israel nationally and exclusively is even more firm because it's based on the promises of this king over here who does whatever he wants, anytime he wants, with anyone he wants because he's absolutely sovereign and he's actually told us what it is he intends to do. What he intends to do is give Israel an actual historical, physical, promised kingdom wherein reigns righteousness where his son is going to sit on a throne and rule from Jerusalem, and all the Gentile nations are going to flow to Jerusalem. We haven't seen that yet. But that physical kingdom is a promise from the king who does everything he wants to do. I think that means it's going to happen. It has to happen, or else that king we've been talking about who does whatever he wants to do isn't really king. Because not everything he says actually comes true. He just gets lucky once in a while. Okay, so let's talk terminology for just a moment. 
the word kingdom appears 125 times in the three synoptic gospels. That's how important it is. I mean, pick another word that shows up that often in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I referred to them a moment ago as synoptic. Do you know what synoptic means? Do you know that word? Same eye, same view. When you go to an optician, when you are dealing with anything optical that has to do with seeing it. And uh, synergy is same, or togetherness, all together. So when I say synoptic gospels, what I'm saying is the three gospels that are looking at the life of Jesus from the same vantage point, the same viewpoint, which is why you will find harmonies of those three gospels and people will take the time to show you where they coordinate and where they say the same things. John is a unique gospel in that he is trying to demonstrate something different than the first three gospels. And in his gospel, the word kingdom only appears three times. John 3.3 3 says, Jesus responded and said to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There's one. Two verses later, John 3, 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. There's two. John 18, 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you're a king? And Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this purpose, I was born. And for this, I have come into the world to testify to the truth, and everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said, what is truth? There, those are the three references to kingdom in the book of John. So John does admit that there's a kingdom, but he always puts it in that spiritual sense, the kingdom of heaven. You will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, my kingdom is not of this realm, this earthly realm. I am the king of kings. I'm the king over all kings. So he takes that very spiritual view. And yet the three synoptics mention it 125 times and oftentimes in a very physical sense. Shall we look at them? Yes. yes. We're not going to look at all 125, but... This phrase is the kingdom of heaven. That's the phrase we just saw out of John, the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 3, reading about John the Baptist, we read, Now in those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, clearly he was not talking about a physical kingdom at that moment, because Jesus did not set up the physical kingdom at that moment. And yet, John would say to his Jewish audience, you need to repent, you need to change, you need to turn, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In what way could John rightly say that the kingdom of heaven was right there in their midst, right there among them? How could he say that? Well, because the king was. 
The very fact that Jesus was on the planet meant that the kingdom of heaven had now encroached on planet earth. The king over everything, the king of kings, the Lord of lords was on the planet. So you need to change. You need to turn because the kingdom of heaven is now among you. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, the voice of one calling out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So Isaiah predicted John the Baptist, who would announce the coming of the king. Matthew 4, starting at verse 12. Should I wait? Are you trying to keep up with me? Or Okay, I'll pause. Matthew 4, starting at verse 12. Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled at Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This happened so that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet would be fulfilled, saying the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, those people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He said the same thing John the Baptist said. John the Baptist introduced Jesus and said, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is among you. Then Jesus walked around saying, repent. The kingdom of heaven is among you. Why? Because he was among them. And the reason that I read that whole segment of Matthew 4 was because Jesus was actually satisfying prophecy from Isaiah, very specific prophecy that the people of Zebulun and Naphtali were actually going to see this great light. And so Jesus went to Capernaum by the sea to fulfill what Isaiah wrote. Why is that important? Because Jesus actually literally physically satisfied that prophecy in time and in history. And that prophecy is part of a larger prophecy of a kingdom to come. Of a literal, genuine, historic kingdom to come. Which means if Jesus actually literally fulfilled the first part of the prophecy... then he's going to literally, genuinely fulfill the rest of it. You get the logic? Not only kingdom of heaven, but every once in a while, we see the language of the kingdom of God. Luke 8, 1 says, Soon afterwards, he began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him. So sometimes he's preaching the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes he's preaching the kingdom of God. Acts 28, 23 says, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. And from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God 
and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Acts 28, 31, still Paul talking. He's preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. Okay, so sometimes we read the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes we read the kingdom of God. What is the difference between the two? What is the distinction between the two? And can we determine that distinction from scripture? The answer is yes, we absolutely can, or I wouldn't have asked the question. You know what they both mean? The exact same thing. Yeah, they both mean the same thing. Can I prove that from Scripture? Sure, I will. In the book of Acts, there are five different references to the disciples of Jesus going out preaching the kingdom of God. Paul mentions the kingdom of God five times in the book of Corinthians, in the writing to the Corinthians. He mentions it once to the Romans. He mentions it once to the Galatians. He uses the phrase kingdom of Christ and God to the Ephesians. He mentions it once to the Colossians, as well as the kingdom of his beloved son in Colossians 1.13. He also mentions his kingdom and his glory in 1 Thessalonians 2.12. And he mentions the kingdom of God once to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 1.5. So this language of kingdom gets thrown around a lot. And it is given particular defining characteristics, the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of his beloved son. So what are those things? Is that just language or are they designating particular distinctions? Turn to Matthew 19, if you would, and I will wait on you for this one because I want you to see this yourself. The phrase kingdom of God occurs 68 times in 10 different New Testament books, while the kingdom of heaven occurs only 32 times and only in the Gospel of Matthew, which is the most Jewish of the Gospels. Matthew 19, 23, and 24. Listen to how Jesus uses the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, in other words, I'm saying the same thing again. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. What did Jesus just do? He equated the two. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are both references to the same thing. One is identifying the realm, and one is identifying the ruler of the realm, but they're both references to the exact same place, the exact same situation. Jesus points out that there is a kingdom in heaven, but that it is God who is the king of the kingdom of heaven. So whether you say kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, you're talking about the exact same realm, which is the heavenly kingdom over which God rules. He is the ruler. Heaven is the realm over which he rules. Is that clear enough? Yes. Then, as if the language weren't confusing enough, sometimes we read about the gospel of the kingdom. See, it just keeps coming up. This kingdom language just keeps turning up in the Bible. 
And notice that the vast majority of times that the kingdom language is used, it's used in the synoptic gospels and it's used by Jesus. Jesus was very fond of this whole kingdom concept. For instance, Matthew 4.23, and Jesus was going about in all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Now you know that the word gospel just means good news. The euangelion. Gospel came down to us from the old English, good spiel. Just means good, good words, good talk. And so Jesus walked around saying good things about the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom. Now what I'm going to show you in the next few weeks is, as he's talking, the people group he is talking to are Jews, are Israelites, are people who have a long, rich history of promises from the prophets of a kingdom. In other words, Jesus didn't get to the planet and say, guys, you know that whole kingdom thing that you've been promised for the last 1,400 years? And even though it sounded really, really physical when the prophets said it, and even though they compared it all the time to the actual physical, literal kingdoms of earth, it's all spiritual now. That's not what Jesus said. Instead, he told them good news about the kingdom. What kingdom are they thinking? They're thinking instantly about that kingdom that's been promised them through all their scripture, by all their prophets, that future glorious kingdom. And in fact, the very fact that Messiah is now on the planet leads many of them to believe the kingdom is going to be now. He's here. If he's here, he's here to establish the kingdom. And Jesus went about proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Boy, that's good news. When you look at the Messiah, the one who's going to feed us with a couple loaves and fishes, the one who's going to pay our taxes with money out of a fish's mouth, the one who's going to heal all our diseases, the one who is going to, as the very son of God, who is going to rule on the throne of David and no more Gentile incursions on Israel. Boy, it just doesn't get to be better news than that. So you can imagine the enthusiasm these people had when they heard the good news of the kingdom. Matthew 9, 35, and Jesus was going about in all the cities and all the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Apparently, that was his modus operandi. Apparently, he went about declaring the good news of the kingdom and then to demonstrate what good news it was, he healed all their sicknesses and drove out all their diseases just to demonstrate that the kingdom of God was among them because he, the Messiah, was among them. Matthew 24, you know that this is the very eschatological section of the book of Matthew. In declaring what's going to happen in the end days, he says, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations And then the end will come. 
So whatever gospel of the kingdom he was walking around teaching and preaching, that same gospel of the kingdom is going to be declared to the entire world. You go to the book of Revelation, and you can read about it. You can read that an angel from heaven goes about declaring the everlasting gospel to all the residents of the earth. And what you find out about it is he's not telling them in a salvific way. He's telling them to make them even more guilty and declaring the gospel of the kingdom. So the kingdom is a very big theme for Jesus. Tom, you have an ESV, right? In the ESV, the kingdom is mentioned 126 times in the Gospels, but then kingdom is only mentioned 34 times in the whole rest of the New Testament, which means the vast majority of references to kingdom that you're going to find in the Bible are right from Jesus, are right in the Gospels. When Jesus is walking on the planet, suddenly kingdom becomes a very big topic. Matthew 6, starting at verse 31, Jesus says, Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing for the Gentiles? The unbelievers eagerly seek for all these things. For your Father in heaven knows that you have need of all these things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Seek first the kingdom and the righteousness of God. Seek first. The kingdom. So Jesus' disciples come to him and they say, you know, John the Baptist teaches his disciples how to pray, so teach us how to pray. And Jesus gives them the model prayer. Very specific about what to say and in what order to say it. You start out by identifying who you're praying to. Our Father. That's specific language. Not just God who is separate from us, but our Father, who we have an intimate relationship with, collectively, our Father. And where is he? He's in heaven. Our Father who is in heaven, he is holy. He is completely separate. Hallowed be thy name. Then before you get to ask for daily bread, before you get to say to him, forgive us our sins, before you get to say to him, protect us from the evil one. Before you get to any of that, the first petition you have to say according to Jesus' model prayer is, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You have to start there. You start with God in heaven. I pray your kingdom's coming. Do you pray that way? Do you start by praying to God, bring your kingdom? Okay, so now let's think about this for a minute. Is God sitting on his throne at that moment when Jesus prays this? Actually, Jesus doesn't pray it because it includes forgive us our sins. He was sinless. But as he's giving this prayer to his apostles and they are praying it, they are reciting it. Where is God at the moment? He's on his throne ruling over his kingdom. Is his kingdom 
present then? Yeah, absolutely. So why would Jesus say, pray thy kingdom come? And why would he specifically say that to Jews who have 1,400 years of prophetic promises of a glorious kingdom to come? Why? Because they're to pray, keep your word. You've promised us this kingdom. You promised us that your son is going to sit on David's throne. You promised us that the Gentile nations are going to flow to Jerusalem. You've made us all those promises. So now we're praying to you, please do what all your prophets have said you're going to do. Okay, so that's the separation between the spiritual kingdom, which is absolutely, completely intact and operating up in heaven. God is on his throne, being a king, doing whatever he wants to do. And Jesus says, pray in a future way, thy kingdom come. Why? Because he's talking about a physical kingdom at the same time that there is a spiritual kingdom. And the two do not negate each other. Luke 12, starting at verse 29, Jesus is speaking to the thousands in Israel, and he says, do not think about what you will eat or what you will drink. Do not keep worrying for all these things. The Gentile nations of the world, they eagerly seek all that, but your father knows that you have need of these things. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. That's what your father has chosen to give you. He's going to give you the stuff of this life. He's going to give you what you need, what to eat, what you wear, what you drink. He knows you have need of those things. He's going to provide you those things. But seek first the kingdom. Pray to him that he'll bring the kingdom because it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. What kingdom is he talking about? The kingdom to come. The very physical earthly kingdom. That was all introduction. Do you have some concept now of what we're going to be talking about for the next couple of weeks? We're going to be talking about the kingdom. And we're going to be worshiping God as a king, but we're also going to be looking at the kingdom to come. Because both of those are essential elements of Jesus' teaching. In order to really understand the physical kingdom, to understand the kingdom to come, we have to begin at the very beginning. We have to begin at the book of Genesis because really that is how early the kingdom teaching begins. So go to Genesis 12 if you would. And we are going to look at the several recitations of the Abrahamic covenant. We have done this a few times here at GCA. But in this context, it's essential that we do it again. There are seven recitations of the Abrahamic Covenant in the book of Genesis. And you'll see the Abrahamic Covenant and the elements of the covenant move from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and then ultimately to Ephraim and Judah. These are physical promises 
and their spiritual promises, which is why I spent so much time this morning showing you that there is a spiritual kingdom and a physical kingdom, and the two do not negate each other. The Abrahamic covenant has physical promises and spiritual promises, and just because you can find some of the spiritual promises doesn't negate the physical promises. All of these promises must come to fruition, and when we get done looking at these recitations from Genesis, I'll also show you that Paul, in the book of Galatians, takes the time to say that the Abrahamic covenant still stands. It's still good. It's still valid. Now these uh, physical promises that are in the Abrahamic covenant are land promises, which then become kingdom promises. That's why we're looking at them. Now normally a covenant is struck between two people. Two people make an agreement. They walk through some parted animals, symbolizing that if either party doesn't keep their end of the agreement, that what happened to the animals will happen to them. It's a blood covenant. A conditional covenant is that kind of covenant. It's conditioned on both parties having half the responsibility and each of them doing their part. If one of the two parties doesn't do his part, that covenant is broken. And so God made with Abraham an unconditional covenant. And what he did was he put Abraham to sleep so that Abraham wouldn't try to walk through the parted animals. And then God went through the parted animals by himself and formed his own covenant with Abraham. So we call it the Abrahamic covenant, but Abraham slept through it. And God actually performed it and then guaranteed it based on his own name, his own nature, his own everlasting character. That's the basis of this unconditional, everlasting covenant that God made. Why do I keep insisting that it's everlasting? Well, one, because he says it. But number two, because you can't find anywhere in the Bible that says it's over. You can't find any place where it's concluded, where it's completed. And as I mentioned, Paul says, it's still good. It's still happening. It's still ongoing. It is an everlasting, unconditional covenant. Based on that, I'm going to go with God has obligated himself to do whatever you find in this covenant. Genesis 12, starting at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to a land which I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and so you shall be a blessing. Okay, right there it was, physical, spiritual. I'll make you a great nation. Okay, that's physical. I'm going to make a great number of people from you. But then also, you're going to be a blessing. That's spiritual. So right away, the Abrahamic covenant has physical and spiritual aspects to it. And you're going to see that pattern throughout every recitation of the Abrahamic covenant. I will bless those who bless you. 
and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So out of you is coming a nation, but through you is coming a blessing to all the nations, not just your posterity. Okay, so that's a physical promise. You're going to have offspring. You're going to have children. You're going to become a great nation. And it's a spiritual promise. You're going to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Genesis 15. Genesis 15, 1, the second recitation. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Since you have given me no offspring, one born in my house, this Eliezer is going to be my heir. And then behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, This man, Eliezer, will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and he said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you up out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess it. That's a very physical promise. I'm giving you this land to possess it. Very physical. And he said, O Lord God, how may I know that I'm going to possess it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And then he brought all these to him and he cut them in two and he laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down on the carcasses and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. What is God doing at that moment? He's answering the question. All Abram said was, how am I going to know? How am I going to know this is true? God makes him a promise, puts an unconditional covenant on him, and tells him the next 400 years of human history. God answers questions in big ways. You got to be careful what you ask God. Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. Now as for you, you will go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, 400 years, they will return here to this very land, this land that I said is yours, that you said, how am I going to know? Well, in 400 years plus, when your descendants come back to this land, that'll be the answer to how will you know. Of course, you'll be dead, but I'm demonstrating to you in human history the answer to the question, how will I know? Big answer. 
Then in the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Fascinating statement. It came about when the sun had set that there was, that it was very dark and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite, the Kenizzite, the Cadmonite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Rephaim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. All that land I give to you and your descendants. Israel never accomplished that land. That land mass that reaches all the way down to the Nile and all the way out to the Euphrates, Israel never actually conquered that entire land. And yet God promised it in an unconditional promise. Do you think they're going to have it eventually? Yes. They have to. They have to get it eventually because God has just said it. Genesis 17. I'm hurrying because I'm working against the clock now and I'm aware of that. Genesis 17. Starting at verse 1. Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face, and God talked to him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. Wait a minute. A moment ago, he said a nation's going to come from you. Now he's going to be the father of multitudes of nations. No longer will your name be Abram. But your name will be Abraham. In other words, from exalted father to father of a multitude. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations out of you and kings are going to come forth out of you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and to your descendants after you. And I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojourning. All the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. Very physical promise. I'm going to give them the land that I have promised you. Very spiritual promise. I have made an everlasting covenant. See it's physical and it's spiritual. Genesis 17, starting at verse 15. Then God said to Abram, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, or Sarai, however you want to pronounce it, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. Then Abraham fell down on his face and laughed. And said in his heart, will a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? And will Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac, which, by the way, means laughter. You will call his name Isaac. Look at the next phrase. 
and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him, and I will make him fruitful, and I will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become a father of 12 princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. And when he finished talking to him, God went up from Abraham. Genesis 22.9. See how the Abrahamic covenant just moved to Isaac? God himself just moved it to Isaac. This is the sacrifice of Isaac we read about in Genesis 22. Then they came to a place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there, and he arranged the wood, and he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood, and Abraham stretched out his hand, and he took the knife to slay his son. But an angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, saying, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And his son said, Whew, close. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked and behold behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. A ram with his head in thorns. Do I need to explain that one to you? Who's going to be a substitute for Abraham's son. And Abraham went and he took the ram and he offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son as a substitute for his son. And Abraham called the place or called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is called to this very day. In the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. And then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sands which are on the seashore and your seed shall possess the gates of their enemies and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. God guarantees yet again, this is absolutely going to happen. It's an everlasting covenant. It is based on me and my consistency to my own promises and my own words but look at the physical and look at the spiritual aspects of the promise the physical things are you're going to have a great many descendants and they're going to possess the gates of their enemies and then also all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through them So there is a physical aspect, there is a spiritual aspect. And then the promise moved to Jacob in Genesis 28, starting at verse 10. Then Jacob departed from Beersheba, and he went to Haran. And he came to a certain place, and he spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place, and he put it under his head, and he lay down on that place. And he had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set on the earth, and its top was reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. And the land on which you lie, I will give it to you and your descendants." 
Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this very land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. Let's stop there. So far we have seen the Abrahamic covenant move from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. Next week we will begin by seeing the physical aspect of the promise and the spiritual aspect of the promise divided. And then we're going to continue to show you that it is on the basis of those promises that God establishes the kingdom of Israel and then gives them Saul, a ruinous king, and follows up with David, a man after God's own heart, and makes an unconditional promise with David that one of his descendants is always going to sit on his throne ruling the 12 tribes of Israel. A very, very physical promise. Then Jesus walks on the planet and he says to his disciples, when I sit on my glorious throne, you're going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Exactly like God promised all the way back in Genesis. There's going to be an establishment of a kingdom and a rule and a land that simply hasn't happened yet. And yet God conditioned it on nothing other than his own promises, his own character, his own nature, his own faithfulness to his own word. And therefore, I am absolutely confident, and you should be too, that that's going to happen. Jesus said, when you pray, pray for it. Pray about the kingdom that all the prophets have talked about. Pray your kingdom come even though you know the kingdom exists in heaven even now, worship him as king, sing to him as king, and pray to him as king. I had a fellow ask me one time many years ago, if you believe God is absolutely sovereign over everything, why do you pray to him? I said, why would you pray to a God who's not sovereign? You want to go to a God who's in charge. You want to go to the king because he does whatever he's pleased to do. I think I'm all talked out. So we are going to sing now and we are going to sing majestic sweetness sits enthroned. That sounds like a kingdom song. Steve, if you would.
you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.